right, guys, listen, I ain't trying to start any fights, which kind of sounds like when somebody says, no offense, but your shirt is ugly or whatever, but I'm not trying to start a fight, but we'll just uh, go with it and see what happens, okay? Um, hopefully, this is something we can just agree to disagree about, but how many of you enjoy those really cheesy, sappy Christmas movies? All right. How many of you say, you know, I have no use for those whatsoever? All right. All right, there's no right or wrong answer. You're good either way. We all have different tastes and different likes. And we're kicking off this new series today, Heaven for the Holidays. And people have many different ideas about what heaven is like. You know, for instance, back in the 80s, Belinda Carlisle declared that heaven is a place on earth. Bob Dylan, and then later Guns N' Roses, saying about knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Uh, Butcher Holler, Kentucky native Loretta Lynn, mentioned that everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And I think she might have been onto something there. But, you know, cartoons and movies and TV shows depict a place where you check in, you're handed a harp, and you're ordered to go sit on a cloud. And if you're lucky, you get to go sit on cloud nine. I saw this coaster in a shop recently, and it defines coffee as a liquid that smells like fresh ground heaven. And some of you are on board with that one. You uh, agree with Belinda Carlisle that heaven is a place on earth, and the sign outside says Starbucks, right? But heaven is typically a one-way trip, so it's easy in our minds to think that heaven is whatever we want it to be. Occasionally, you'll hear somebody share this story or an account claiming they had a near-death experience or some kind of out-of-body experience, and they'll declare, this is what heaven is really like. But the Bible describes heaven as a real place. And just like New York or London or Grundy, it isn't subject to our opinions or interpretations. So if our idea of heaven doesn't match what's revealed in the Bible, then we need to adjust. So today, I hope we can ground ourselves in the fact that we're not talking metaphors, but heaven is a real, actual place. So the first thing we're going to ask today is this. Is the Bible trustworthy? And if your first response is, Trav, I don't think you're allowed to ask that in church, then I just want you to know that God isn't afraid of your questions. We want to be people of faith, but Christianity is not all about just having blind faith. I know that many of you are already strong in your faith, but there may be folks here who need to know whether the Bible is trustworthy. All right, we could be here all week and discuss reason upon reason why the Bible is trustworthy, but I just want to give you one example, and then we'll move on. But if you need more, just holler at me later, okay? But we get this television channel, and they brag that they have the region's only 10-day weather forecast. And I hear that, and I think, well, that's great, but I think I could guess at what the weather's going to be like in 10 days, too. Some days, they can't tell you with any degree of certainty what the weather will be like tomorrow. So why would I trust them 
to tell me what the weather is going to be like a week and a half from now. I can make my own prediction. A week, 10 days from now, rain high of 48. And in 10 days, if I'm wrong, I'll just say the atmospheric barometric pressure took a steep dive and a cold front came in from the coast of China and that pushed in and caused everything to change. All right, this has been your 10-day weather forecast by Trav. You're welcome. All right, but predicting the weather a week and a half out, that's a pretty audacious claim, don't you think? Well, if you think that's something, here's a really audacious claim, and it's found in Isaiah chapter 11, starting at verse 11. It says this, At that time, the Lord will again reach out and take his people who are left in countries like Assyria, North Egypt, South Egypt, Ethiopia, Elam, Babylonia, Hamath, and other faraway countries around the world. He will gather the people of Israel and Judah who were forced to leave their country. They were scattered to all the faraway places on earth. But he will raise the flag as a sign for the other nations, and he will gather his people together again. So here's a, a biblical prediction that a group of people called Israel, a nation, would be scattered all over the world, even to faraway far away places. You know what faraway places means? I think it means places that don't have a name yet. Places that aren't going to be discovered for another 1,500 years after Isaiah wrote this. Faraway places means God said to Isaiah, many of these Jews way over here on the other side of the planet will come back and raise a flag over Israel. And Isaiah said, wait, there's another side of the planet? When did this happen? I don't even know what to call that. Can I just say far away places? So here's a prediction to two events. First one, the dispersion of the nation of Israel throughout the world. If you're looking for a nifty new word today, uh, history has called that the diaspora. All right. Followed by two, the return of Israel as a nation. So Isaiah writes this prophecy at a time when Israel is still a sovereign nation. And then over a century later, all right, you know, you can read in the book of Daniel, uh, the Babylonians invade and various empires on down through the Romans rule over the Jewish people until a little after the time of Christ. So they're about 600 years, you know, small amounts of Jews just kind of trickle out and they leave their homeland. But in 73 AD, the Jewish people had started an uprising against Rome. And if, if you know anything about history, the Roman Empire, they don't take well to you starting uprisings against them. They squash that stuff really quickly. So Rome comes in. They lay siege to Jerusalem, and the Romans destroy the second temple that the Jewish people build in Jerusalem. And for the next 1,800 years, the Jewish people were dispersed, diaspora, to Egypt and Ethiopia, and Europe, and faraway places, like America. So, you know the, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, do you know what the Jewish people call it? Their Bible, all right? Th their Bible ends at Malachi, where our Old Testament ends. So, the 20th century came along, and many Jewish people got into this idea called Zionism, which was this belief based on passages in the Hebrew Bible 
that God's destiny for the Jewish people was to reclaim their status as a sovereign nation in the land of Israel. And in the first half of the 20th century, the whole world went to war twice. And then in 1948, for the first time in nearly 2,000 years, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people re-entered their homeland and Israel became a sovereign nation again, just like the Bible forecast. All right, and there are dozens more verses that we could look at in the Bible, written 2,500 years or more that ago that predict the nation of Israel would be scattered, but that one day God would bring them back to possess their land once again. So think about that. If I said this section over here is going to be shipped to Asia and dispersed and scattered all around, and in a few years, this section over here is going to be scattered all over Europe, but it's okay because in about 2,000 years' time, your descendants will come back and they're going to rebuild Community Heights Church right here on this property. You say, that's a, that's a neat idea, but it's a little unreasonable. God is the God who accomplishes the unreasonable. That's why he chose a scrawny shepherd boy to kill a giant. That's why he chose a mess-up and a denier like Simon Peter to preach in front of thousands of people on the day of Pentecost. That's why he chose to predict this unlikely event that Israel would be scattered all over the world, but eventually they're going to make a comeback. It would be audacious for me to predict that y'all are going to be scattered, but your, your grand-grand-grand-grand-grand-grand-grandchildren will come back and rebuild this, right? You know the old saying, how does it go? It ain't bragging if, if you can back it up, right? God can make audacious claims because God can back up those audacious claims. I know many of us can draw from our personal experiences of knowing God and knowing his word and seeing him work in our lives. But not everyone has had the same faith-building experiences that you may have had. So I just want you to know there are many ways that the Bible proves its trustworthiness. So since the Bible is trustworthy, then I have another question. Is heaven a real place? The Bible's reliable, and the Bible tells us that heaven is a real place would be the short answer, all right? But we tend to think of heaven as God's reward for those who are right with him when they die, which is accurate, and we're going to look at that in a few minutes. But the Bible actually has several examples of living people who have experienced heaven. We could literally stay here all day if we wanted to dive in to those experiences. But you have Ezekiel. If you read the first few chapters of Ezekiel, he details his experience of visiting heaven. In 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah is taking the, the prophet. He's taken up to heaven while he is still alive. In the Gospels, Jesus often talks about, the, about heaven and the kingdom of heaven in John chapter 4, Jesus says this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And, you know, I've heard people um, get caught up in arguments over, is the correct translation in my father's house are many mansions? Is the correct translation in my father's house there are many rooms? I'm telling you, it's not a hill to die on for me because I am just glad that Jesus said there is a place for me. All right, so Jesus, citizen number one of heaven, says that heaven is a real, actual place where we can go. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, talks about, Paul talks about someone, and most scholars believe he's actually saying, you know, referring to himself, like a friend of mine, that kind of thing, All right, who visited heaven. And he says that he struggles to even begin to describe all the amazing things he saw. Revelation chapter 4 on, the Apostle John describes the end times from a perspective in heaven. You know, we've heard in our days these instances of people having near-death experiences. So how do we decide, are they legitimate? Is it their imagination? Are they just telling stories what's going on? To answer that, we turn to the Bible. We can trust John's description of heaven because it's consistent with the rest of God's Word. For instance, John's experience of heaven is consistent. We see some overlap with what Ezekiel tells us and with what Jesus tells us. So educate yourself. Now, my wife, years ago, worked in a bank. And there were two or three times over the course of that employment where, uh, where she came across counterfeit bills. And you know the reason she knew that they were not the realio dealio? Because she knew what the real stuff was like. Every day, over and over, she's handling the real stuff, and she's becoming educated on the real thing. What, is it, what it looks like, what it feels like. So she didn't need to know about a hundred different types of fake currency. She just needed to know the genuine article. So educate yourself on the genuine article. If you want to know what heaven's like, read God's word and what it says about heaven. If you know what John and Ezekiel and Jesus say about heaven, then if Billy Bob comes along and he tells you about his experience of going to heaven and coming back, then you're going to know whether or not Billy Bob is actually worth listening to. So the Bible is reliable. The Bible talks about heaven, so we can trust that heaven is a real place. But so what? Maybe you're wondering, Trav, how does this affect my life? I'm glad you asked. Did you know there's a town in New Mexico called Truth or Consequences? In fact, after we're done, you can pull up your GPS or your Maps app or whatever, and you can search for it, and it will tell you that you can drive there in 25 hours. If you'll pay for my room and meals, I'll even ride with you. Road trip. Anybody? All right. If you didn't know that truth or consequences is a real place, now you do. But that doesn't have a significant impact on your life. The fact that heaven is real, though, that has a huge impact on your life. So I want to take a few minutes and tell you why it matters. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, it tells us this. We are confident I, confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Then over in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. 
So Lazarus is this poor guy. He's had a really tough life. While the rich man thinks he's got everything, and so he has no time for God. So verses 22 and 23 tell us this. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Number one reason the reality of heaven matters is this. You had better get your citizenship right. God is gracious. God doesn't want anyone to perish. But now is the time to make sure you know where you're headed when you die. The Bible has very clear teaching on heaven, on heaven and hell. And making sure you're headed to the one while avoiding the other is the most important decision you are going to make in your life. And I'm not trying to put anybody else down, but if we're trusting the Bible, then we aren't going to follow any teachings that suggest that there's a third option. All right? You know, you have some groups that teach, you know, a teaching of purgatory, where you can suffer for your sins for a period, and then you get a golden ticket on a bus to heaven. Some groups teach in a baptism for the dead. All right, this notion that if I have ancestors who weren't right with God when they died, I can get baptized on their behalf to earn their place in heaven. I'm not trying to mow anybody down with a Holy Ghost scripture machine gun. But eternity is on the line. And that makes this of the greatest importance because we want to be biblically accurate rather than following superstitions or man-made teaching. According to Scripture, when you die, you're not going to linger as a ghost, poltergeist, or haint. You're not going to purgatory. Nobody's going to baptize you away from some third option. If you have trusted in Christ, then your absence from this body will mean your presence in heaven. If you haven't, then like that rich man, you are going to find yourself in torment. So if you're relying on being a good person, if you're relying on family connections, or even baptism, church membership, church attendance, to carry you to your final destination, then I encourage you today, to put your faith, put all that aside, all those other things, put them aside, and put your faith in Jesus Christ and turn to him as your Savior. So we want to make sure that we're citizens of heaven, but there's a second reason it's important we, rec it's important we recognize that heaven's a real place. It's found in Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on, on earth where moth and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Number two, heaven's reality matters because you can have eternal treasure in heaven. Back in 1995, would you have liked to have had stock in Blockbuster Video? You've been doing pretty good, right? How would you like to own stock in Blockbuster today? At one point, that would have been a great investment, but it doesn't hold much value now, does it? I want you to ask yourself a question. Am I invested in only the present, 
or am I invested in eternity? The present doesn't match up very well in the light of eternity. When I was younger, they taught this driving technique. Where do they tell us to put our hands on the wheel? Ten and two. Right. And I remember my driving instructor told me, if you put your hands on ten and two, even if you slip down a little bit, you're still at three and nine, and you have a great ability to control it. Some of you have teenagers, so you already know this, but they don't teach 10 and 2 anymore. You know where they're teaching them to put their hands now? 5 and 7. When my oldest told me this, I told him how I'd been told to do 10 and 2 because even if your hands slip down, you're still at 3 and 9. And I said, if you're starting at 5 and 7 and your hands slip down a little bit, you're going to die. They don't even teach 10 and 2 anymore. What can we count on in this world? Not much. Everything you have in this life is temporary. Don't spend your life reaching for the temporary when God has put eternity in your grasp. Are there things you need to let go of? Are you hoarding here when you should be storing there? All right, so number three reason that the reality of heaven is important is this. A reunion is imminent. When I was younger, we used to sing this hymn in church called When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. And it said, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. And when I was younger, I didn't know that a roll was like an attendance sheet. I just knew that if I went to a restaurant and they were serving rolls, then I was a happy guy. All right? And if there's going to be rolls up yonder, then for sure I was going to be there. Are there any songs that let us know if there's going to be honey butter? Bob, you know? All right. All right. Anyways, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Paul contrasts the here and now with yonder in heaven, where the rolls are. Paul says this, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know even as I am fully known. Some people ask the question, are we going to know the people in heaven that we know now? The scriptures tell us that we will know and will be known. Friday, Holly and I went for a little while uh, to the house of, of, of a friend we hadn't seen in a few months. And it wasn't a long time, but it was so cool just getting to chat and catch up a little bit. And then we went grocery shopping. So we went to Walmart. Yeah, very brave of us, I know. Um, but we ran into our friend Carrie there. Got to talk to her for a minute, for a few minutes. Angela Harrison popped by, made a quick cameo and waved at us. And then we were getting ready to check out. We ran into my old youth pastor and his wife. And we got to talk to them for a few minutes. Isn't it really cool when you get to visit with friends that you haven't seen in a while? The ultimate reunion an eternal reunion is imminent. I know that many of us have, have friends, and some of us have family who have beat us to heaven. All right? and, and, that, and that leaves an ache, okay? It leaves an emptiness, doesn't it? I know many of us are excited for Christmas, but for a lot of us, there's somebody you're not going to have around this year. And that's difficult. It's hard to face that pain. It's hard to face that absence. But there's a coming a day 
when that absence will become presence. And those of you who are hurting and missing someone, I especially want y'all to know the Bible is reliable and it tells us that heaven is a real place. And because Christ came to reconcile us and to make a place for us, a reunion is imminent with those we miss. Knowing that heaven is a real place, it doesn't take away all the pain, but it can give us a perspective. Philippians 1, starting in verse 21, Paul says this, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Loretta said, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. But Paul said, you know what? I'm good either way. He realized that his days here were numbered. And he was holding tightly to the promise of being with Christ, which is far better. Guys, this isn't our home. This is not our home. Life can be hard and discouraging, but that doesn't mean that we have to live discouraged lives. We are still allowed to live victorious lives because we are bound for something greater. In Romans 8, verse 18, Paul says this, For I reckon, that's some Appalachian phrasing for you, isn't it? Who knew Paul was a first century hillbilly? All right, he says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Eternity is bigger than what I'm facing today. Your hurts are real. All right? Maybe you've been hurt by friends, members of the opposite sex, parents, whoever. That's real. Okay, That hurt is legitimate, and I'm not going to minimize that. But you don't have to live like your pain is all there is. You can keep it in front of you that now is only part of a much larger story. So when I encounter someone driving poorly on the way home, I can be irritated. But if my mind is heaven-bent, then I can quickly let that go, and I don't even have to throw a rude gesture their way. My current reality is not my forever reality. I want you to say that with me because you need to make sure you get that. My current reality is not my forever reality. I can remember when I was younger, we would go to Kmart and the Claypool Hill Mall when I was so little, it seemed so big to me. I noticed a few months ago, I can stand at the top and see all the way down to the bottom store. And that's not a knock, I'm just saying that my perspective has changed. How you look at things changes as you get older, older, doesn't it? As I've grown older, I've realized that faith is what makes people larger than life. I don't care what kind of car you drive, how much money you make. I've been privileged in my life to be around Christians who blow me away with the amount of faith and how they walk with and trust God. Those are giants to me. Those are the people who are larger than life. Read a few minutes ago from Philippians chapter 1, where Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. But Paul realized that his life still 
at that time had a purpose. God generally doesn't save us and then immediately call us to heaven. Why don't you take a deep breath? Do you feel that? The air in, in your lungs? You know what that is? That's God's purpose for your life. Uh, you can resume normal breathing now. All right. But as long as you have breath, God has a purpose for your life. Paul continues on like this, Philippians 1, 24 through 26. He says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, with you all, and your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. The breath in our lungs, our purpose, is to make God known. All right? It's not our job, it's not our responsibility to save people, but it's also not our job to decide who is too broken for heaven. It's our job to live our faith. It's our job to speak our faith. It's our job to point people to heaven. It's our job to point people to a Savior. And especially at this time of year, when we celebrate, let's celebrate like people who know why we're celebrating. Back in the 90s, I can recall seeing this interview with John Bon Jovi. And John is talking about the meaning of Christmas, and he says something to the extent of, many people have the wrong idea about Christmas. They act like it's about getting things, and he said, Christmas isn't J.C. Penney's birthday. I'm like, yeah, Bon Jovi is pointing us to Jesus. Then he continued, Christmas is about family. And I go, oh, so close, John. You were on the right road, but then you took the wrong turn off. And maybe that's a minor thing, but Christmas isn't about my family or your family. Yes, we're coming up on a great time to love our families and hopefully spend quality time with the people we love, and that really is terrific. I'm not minimizing that, but Christmas is about God's family. It's about God sending his son to show us his love. Christmas is all about heaven coming to earth. So as believers, we can give and receive presents. We can enjoy our families. We can sing jingle bells and Santa Claus is coming to town and have a great time. But let's remember to, keep, to let his name be on our lips. As long as we have breath, let's use it to tell others, that God came down from heaven to earth so that we could have the opportunity to go to a place called heaven. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to be together. I just thank you that you did send your son on that first Christmas morning to, to be our Savior. I just thank you for your love for us and everything that you do for us, God. I just ask you to please just help us to go out of here and be people who remember that, that you are the true meaning, and that our purpose is to speak of you. First in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.